0: Last week I gave a talk here that I tried to record on this device, and one should think that somebody who works with technology would make sure that the talk is actually recorded. But instead of having anything recorded, it was just 20 minutes of silence. I have to admit, it's the best talk I've ever given. However, since we have the need to also live in the world of words, I would like to repeat or reiterate what I talked about. And what I spoke about and what I will speak about tonight is going back to the beginnings, to the early times in my own training, in the Zen tradition. As you may remember, my first Zen teacher, Genro Seon, he lived in Vienna, in Austria. He had studied for some time since the early 70s with Joshu Sasaki Roshi at Mount Baldy Zen Center. And then he uh, was made an Osho, a Zen teacher. He served as the vice abbot at Mount Baldy, but also at at that time it was called Bodhi Mandala Zen Center in Hemes in New Mexico. And as it goes in our lives, it took a turn for him because his father, who still lived in Vienna, who had lived in Vienna all this time, as a cab driver, he became more and more elderly and in need of help. so Genro returned to Vienna that was in 1980 Just at that time, the United Nations had a move that brought a lot of staff to Vienna, especially the International Atomic Energy Agency found its home in Vienna and there were some people there who were Zen practitioners that way our Austrian Sangha formed and I had the luck to actually become part of the Sangha in 1982. And there was Genro. He was a very strict teacher. He had learned a lot from Joshu Roshi and speaking about the Dharma activity in his talks, we learned a lot of things. And what was most helpful is how it related to our activities that we were undertaking in our practice. Sometimes you might ask yourself, why do we do a specific form in this specific way? For example, when we start kin'in, if we follow the traditional form of rinzai zen in the myoshinji tradition, we always begin with our left foot. We always step forward with our left foot. When we move backwards... Conversely, we move our right foot back first. When we sit in Zazen and we form the Jhāna-mudra, it is the right hand that is on the bottom and the left hand that is on the top. And then the thumbs touch. Buddha statues have a specific way which leg goes over which first. Now, of course, we could say a lot of this is just arbitrary. But here's what I was told and what I always found quite helpful. When we study Zen in this Tathagata Zen tradition, in general in Rinzai Zen, there's always talk about this duality, the opposition of two mutually opposing activities, or of uh, two poles, like the North Pole and the South Pole, or plus and minus, male and female, birth and death. Or sometimes it is described as host and guest. If you read the Rinzai Roku, you will hear about host and guest. But also sometimes it is expressed in a way of an activity. The activity of growing, of expansion. The activity of dying, of contraction. Increase, decrease. It was explained to me that the left side in the formal practice is stressed when it comes to expressing the activity of contraction, the activity of becoming less. As you might have experienced in your own sitting practice, when we sit and when we train in the formal circumstance of a monastery or of a place of Zen training, a lot of things emphasize the letting go of the idea of an I am self of an identity, of some kind of holding on to this is what I am, or the thinking from a point of view of an individual. Look at the outfits that the monks wear or the practitioners. In the formal context, we all wear about the same robes of the same shape. In very strict monastic settings, all the robes have the same color. All the monks change the robes from summer robes to winter robes on the same day. There's even a ceremony for that, koromo gae, the changing of the monk's robe of the koromo. You might also have noticed that the hairstyle that the monks subscribe to is very similar. Everybody shaves their head. And again, that is meant to erase those traces of individuality, of expression of I am this way, I have this identification, and so on. We don't get up when we want in that context. Again, it is meant to shrink our attachment to having what we perceive as a free will. I want to sleep longer. Well, you might have the thought when you hear the shinrei, the waking bell in the morning. But overcoming it, you just leave your cozy warm bed. Put on the robes and appear in the Zendo. Sit in a row with the other people, breathing the same air, making the same bows, chanting the same sutras, dharanis, and other texts, drinking the same tea and eating the same food. So that is the activity of minus or becoming less, the activity of contraction, becoming less, 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 until this I am self and the identity or the identification with separation from the other completely disappears. So the left foot forward can serve as a reminder to disappear completely, to disappear completely into the walk. It's just a reminder. When we sit with the jhana mudra and the left hand is over the right hand, again, it's a manifestation that the dominant activity at the moment of formal practice of zazen is the activity of drinking, of contraction, of dying until we completely disappear. Conversely, we can identify the other side, the right hand, as the active side, the side of initiation, the putting out of being separate, and acting from that kind of direction of motion, expansion. And as we learn over the course of Zen practice, it is important that we learn how to balance both sides Every night, when we really fall asleep, the side of contraction naturally takes over and we completely disappear. Zen speaks about it in a way that we say when we fall asleep, the whole world disappears. And when we wake up in the morning, we open our eyes, the whole world comes into existence. So Genro taught us a lot about this. When we act in the Zen context, sometimes we prefer the side of contraction. Left foot first, left hand up, or exhalation. Exhalation also can be named as one of those activities of giving yourself completely away, of dying. When you physically die, well, I don't know anyone who died with an inhalation. Everybody who dies exhales. The air just disappears. In fact, tonight we have a picture of Josh Roshi on the Butsudan. And I remember very well when I saw Shoshu Doshi very shortly before he died in the hospital in Los Angeles and then comparing his body when I saw him less than an hour after he passed away. It was like having gone in a very short time from a three-dimensional existence to a flattened out two-dimensional piece of matter. He was flat, completely flat, completely exhausted everything that was in him as life. It was quite a stunning thing to experience. It made it very clear that this is it, gone, gone, over to the other shore. But sometimes, of course, it's important to follow the activity of initiation, of initiating action, not surrendering. In society, it's important that we learn how to do that in the appropriate way. Otherwise, we will be discriminated against, we will be taken advantage of. So having a healthy dose of self-confidence when it is necessary it's a very good thing. And healthy here means not attached to it, but able to assert one's position as being separate when appropriate. Now, when it came to Zen practice again, when we are not doing Zazen, when we are not giving in to that activity of complete dissolution, of complete surrender... For example, when we drink tea, what we learn to practice is to give ourselves fully. That means taking the first step out of that dualistic kind of concept of minus and plus. And being able to manifest both activities at the same time Picking up your teacup with both hands and drinking. You can learn that the activities that we, for the sake of understanding and for the sake of upaya, of a crutch in our practice, separate into contraction and expansion, that they actually happen simultaneously. Zen practice and Zen philosophy or talking about Zen is a crutch that helps us with our dualistic mind to build up some kind of orientation, like a blind person has a stick, a staff to poke and to feel what's ahead. In the same way, in the same way we can use our dualistic cognitive mind to set up the direction of our journey but then breaking it and realizing it that actually the confines of our human cognitive mind of intellection are only able to describe that two-dimensional aspect of life is very important. What I find really interesting about it is that duality is set up and opposition is set up within the confines of cognition, of intellection, in order to ultimately lead to the point where we can experience and know without any doubt and recognize the limitation of that cognition, the limitation of that kind of intellection that only is able to function within the confines of duality. Within duality, everything is arbitrary. Words are arbitrary. Who says that plus is expansion and that minus is contraction? Who says that the left hand is the hand or the left side of our body, is the side that manifests contraction. And if you follow too closely the descriptions like that, and you get into the camp that says, no, you can't say that plus is contraction and minus is expansion. That's wrong. You have firmly grounded yourself in that duality between right and wrong call it whatever you call it, in the two-dimensional realm and the realm of words, you fail. You fail to express the wholeness, the simultaneity, the synchronicity of that what we call duality. It's only an overlay over a much more dynamic world, the activity of change or the activity of dharma, the activity of karma, the activity of the universe, whatever you want to call it. Call it God. As long as it is dynamic and moves, you may call whatever name you want. Remember, even the ancient Indian sages knew about that. It's nothing new. It's not Zen. It's not this ism or that ism. It's an archetypical experience of the human being who contemplates, who examines the human condition. The Rik Veda begins with the words Ekam Sat Vipra Bahuda Varanti. The highest is one and the same no matter what name we attach to it. So let's use our dualistic mind and the descriptions of the activities of dharma, of the polarity, as a tool, as upaya. And let us run into the limitations of that duality, of intellection, of cognition. Because that is the only way for us to realize and to become aware and awaken to that that is always present, yet lies outside of descriptive duality. Form is important as upaya. If you can do it without form, that is wonderful if you join some Rinzai Zen place, you might as well take advantage of it. Sometimes people will say, well, the form that you have at the Rinzai places keeps many people away from it. And the only thing I have to say about that is, no, it's not about the form. You can find what this kind of practice moves towards in many different ways. And this is just one of those many different ways. More suited for some, less suited for others. But in no way inferior, in no way superior. So step forward in the morning, and decide, well, will this be a day where I will practice surrender? Or is this a day where I put my right foot forward and actively initiate? And to make it really Zen-sounding, maybe what we can initiate with this action is... Surrender. Use the tool of cognition wisely. It's okay to be smart. Let's just not be too smart so that we miss that. That is larger than the limited two dimensional dualistic view of a fixated point of view and comparison. Let's open up. Let's have that stinky self fall away. It will come back no matter what. But let it be fresh, like the breath. Inhalation and exhalation naturally alternate in a linear understanding of time that is fixated on a specific point of view. But after some time in this practice, Try to see exhalation not as exhalation opposed to inhalation that is not present, but become one and follow the activity rather than the cognitive aspect of labeling it or comparing it to something that is not present by the definition of your label. Inhalation and exhalation are the same thing happening simultaneously. And no matter how often I might say that, you have to come to that understanding yourself. So let's take the time to do that.